So we're not going to bring something to market that isn't going to get a 4.7, a 4.8 star rating on Amazon. And our product development team does a great job of making sure the products that we do uh, design and create hit that quality standard. And, you know, we're not going to purchase that product uh, to sell until that product hits the standard. In 2016, I co-founded a drinkware company called Simple Modern. I was obsessed with the question, what would happen if we built a for-profit company focused on generosity? This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at how we scaled from a bootstrapped startup to nine figures in annual revenue. We'll share with you the strategies we used, things learned along the way, and how we built a different type of company. This is Scaling for Good. Hi, welcome back to Scaling for Good. I'm your host, Mike Beckham, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Simple Modern. Just a few years ago in 2019, we were on the threshold of recognizing a goal that we had had for years at Simple Modern, really since the very beginning. We wanted to get licensed with the Walt Disney Company. Why? The answer was pretty simple. Walt Disney Company did over $50 billion a year in licensed product sales across all of its different partners. And we knew that that license would lead to another round of growth and open up countless possibilities. We were on a call, myself, Corbin Wallace, and somebody representing Disney, problem was Disney was getting cold feet. They had brought on another partner in the drinkware space, and they weren't sure if bringing on two partners so close together was the right move. It was a tense conversation. We really made our pitch for why we thought we could be different and an additive partner. And after what seemed like a forever silence, although it was probably only a 15 or 20 seconds on the other side of the line, Lori, our contact at Disney, said, I want to move forward. And that was the beginning of our partnership with Disney. Over the years, we've had several different yeses that transformed our company and how we approached licensing. And even more broadly, licensing has been a part of our growth as a brand and how we've grown to nine figures in annual revenue. Someone who's been at the heart of many of those conversations and many of those decisions is my guest in today's episode, Corbin Wallace. So Corbin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So let's talk about licensing. You've done that uh, since your beginning at the company and you've been very successful at it. You know, Simple Modern during that time has grown into, I think, uh, probably the biggest licensed drinkware provider in the world. Uh, if not, we're, we're probably nipping at the heels of that title. Mm-hmm. And we are now partnered with just about everybody um, significant in the intellectual property space. And you've been an architect of much of that. Tell us what you've learned from being deeply involved in the licensing world about creating partnerships, because it starts there. You're convincing some of the the best IP in the world to trust you with their baby, Mm -hmm. which, you know, to to trust you to take Mickey Mouse and to portray him in a positive light, to take the, you know, whatever, the Cleveland Browns logo and to present that in a positive light and to respect all of their brand guidelines. How do you create the kind of partnerships where you, you have that kind of trust from these major organizations? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to come down to like, one, you have to have a business model and you have to have a business case to like why you want to get licensed with anybody. But I think what makes the great partnership is understanding what the needs are of the other partner and trying to fill that. And also having a really long kind of mindset and time horizon that you're willing to kind of be patient to fulfill that 
brand promise mm-hmm. and that brand, like that relationship promise with the brand. Because so you're telling me that it's not as simple as we just, you know, you put Mickey Mouse's low, you know, Mickey Mouse's face on a cup and profit that it's, it's not no, that simple. It doesn't, it does, it's not that simple. It's a little bit more complex than that. Um, and just because we have the license for certain products and certain distribution channels, it doesn't mean we can put some of these intellectual property assets on any product that we want and sell it anywhere at any time. There are a lot mm-hmm. of parameters around it. And so I think that ultimately at the end of the day, like what makes a really good partnership and licensing is what makes a really good partnership really anywhere in life in any kind of relationship. It's understanding the needs of the other person, having a really long kind of long-term mindset at how long you want the partnership to last. And I think that those are two really key inputs Mm -hmm. to it because um, a lot of people in business think about transactions and we try to think about relationships and we can't just have a transaction and sell intellectual property products for one year and expect it to be all that profitable for us. We have to think about things not only in years, but we like to think about things in decades. So we have a roadmap of how do we become the very best licensed partner for a media company or a sports league or a team um, over the next 10 or 15 years, not over the next two to three quarters. Well, and it's especially appropriate because these, this IP, most of it, the vast majority of it has built its reputation Mm -hmm. over decades. Right. That's why it's so valuable. Mickey Mouse's Mm -hmm. first cartoon was in the thirties. In the thirties. We, we just, we just celebrated Disney 100. Yes. Right. So here's a Disney. Yeah. So it gives you a feel for that IP took a long time to become as valuable mm-hmm. as it is. Occasionally, you'll have something new, like, like Bluey, that'll show up. Yeah. That'll that'll be become very valuable very quickly. But most of it, it took a long time. So you shouldn't expect that a partnership with with yeah. these organizations, you're going to have to take a long term view. And you have to be additive for them. So right now, if you think about the Walt Disney Company, celebrated a hundred years, they've had a partner in the beverage space since Disneyland opened. They've had the same partner in the beverage space since Disneyland opened. That's amazing. I mean, that they opened in 1955. Like we're thinking about how do you, how are you additive to a multi-billion dollar company? And mm-hmm. I really love our products. I think we make great drinkware products and a variety of product lines, but it's like, you have to find a way to be additive to that company. And it's not like we're the first person to ever put that intellectual property um, asset on a cup. And so you have to have a really strong business case. You have to either bring new innovation to the space. You have to understand a marketing or a distribution channel differently than everyone else. And I think that's one, one of the ways that we add value to our partners. Um, So you have to be additive because not anyone can put this intellectual property on a product, um, but it's it's not rocket science. Yeah, that the actual process of making a cup with Mickey Mouse on it is not... There's a lot of different manufacturing partners that can figure that Mm -hmm. out. That's not the hard part. The hard part... What is the hard part of licensing? What is it that we bring to the table that makes someone like the NFL or the Walt Disney Company say... I want to partner with you. I think it's a, a couple of different pieces. One, you have to have the right product. I think in a consumer product space, uh, if you're starting with anything besides the product, it's going to be really hard to convince customers um, or to sell customers on what you're trying to um, sell them. But so, in our space, you know, there's a lot of people that make right. good products. So what do you what do you do when there's a lot of competitors that make pretty good products in your space? What's the appeal? A lot of it's around, some of it's around design. And so we have a really talented creative team that comes up with literally thousands of designs that we survey. We talk to customers a lot. We try to get a lot of customer feedback um, through surveys, um, not only on specific designs and patterns, but silhouettes of products that they'd be interested in or uh, just certain kinds 
kind of like styles or themes. So we talk to customers a lot. We put, leave a lot on the cutting room floor. So right now we probably have 50 media licensed um, designs on Amazon at this point. We've probably created 3,000 designs mm-hmm. to get to uh, those 50 designs. And so that's a lot of time. There's a lot of effort being put in by our creative team uh, to come up with that. It's duration. truly a creative endeavor. We're yes. taking creative IP and it's a creative endeavor in mm-hmm. order to come up with the very best right. looking stuff. Yeah. And so I think that part of it's just the value that you create, the ornamentation process and the designs that you make, and then being able to sell those in a really high volume way with your retail partners. So we've got great retail partners in e-commerce and in physical retail, and we've been able to tell them a value story, um, not only with our branded products, but with our licensed products as well. Yeah, I think obviously distribution matters Mm -hmm. and these companies care about sales. They care about driving royalties. I think the point that you're making about creativity and the way things looking really matter, Mm -hmm. uh, that is especially true in in the IP space, especially with a partner like the Walt Disney Company. They really care about how things look and they have a lot of rules around how things can and can't look. Yeah, there's lots of parameters that these companies have on their intellectual property because they've worked so hard over decades, like you said, to create this kind of intellectual property value. And so they have a lot of parameters. So we have to go through compliance um, financially, as well as with our factory partners, as well as like with our actual design process where we'll create a design, we'll submit it for approval. Those companies will have tweaks. And do we create that design out of thin air or are they even influencing the designs we create? They'll influence the designs as well. They have creative Mm -hmm. assets that we get to utilize and kind of um, use to create the actual design that we have on our cup. Like, this design right here. Uh, but then we have to submit it for approval. There are tweaks, there are edits. We make those tweaks, we resubmit them. Then we get pre-production samples and their production samples. Those have to be approved. Packaging has to be approved. There are lots of um, approvals in the license space. So just because you dream it up and you think it's great doesn't mean it's going to make it to market. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of value um, in that process, but at the same time, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of partnership and collaboration. As a good example of the rewards that can come from going through that process, uh, we have a bottle at Target. We we thought that it could be a good idea to have an adult-themed mm-hmm. Disney bottle on Target shelf, which was maybe a reach. We didn't know, but the thought was, can we do something that's very elevated style, but Mm -hmm. it's also Disney. We came up with the design that we were able to line upon with Disney and it has crushed it on shelves. It looks at home in a Target. It's something that a trendy mom would be willing Mm -hmm. to carry, but there's not been anything quite like it out in the market. And you and and the team have really created something beautiful that also is true to Disney's uh, Disney's aesthetic and puts them in the best light, helps our partnership with Target make money, helps Disney make money, and has really been kind of a win-win-win situation. Right. Because one of the things with licensing is it's signaling. It's signaling like fandom with the NFL, as an Mm -hmm. example. It's like you want to show that you're a fan of a certain team, whether it's a football team or a basketball team, or you're a fan of a certain character in a media company. 
And so you're really trying to signal um, some connection or affinity um, to a property or a team. Uh, you also want to show that you're fashionable or that you're conscious about fashion and that you want things to look good. And so that, those are all things that we think about when coming up with a product. What's the actual process of getting a license and being becoming approved to sell the IP for a particular partner? Well, one, you have to find the person to talk to. A lot of these uh, companies, uh, whether they're media companies or sports leagues, they kind of kind of run like a medieval castle. They're mm-hmm. very hard to get into. The drawbridge is up. There's a moat. There are alligators. There are people shooting mm-hmm. flaming arrows at you. Not really any for any other reason but to protect the kingdom, protect the castle. Yeah. The IP is in the castle. The IP is in the castle, yeah. and they're going to try to protect it at all cost. Um, and so it's one, it's kind of hard just to find someone to talk to. But once you're able to find someone to talk to, you have to come up with a business case on how you would bring additive sales uh, to the partnership. You have to put a business case together of how you would generate more ro- revenue for them. Why does then, that matter? Why do you have to be additive? Because they don't want to necessarily just have a lot of companies that they have to manage from a product space just to bring in kind of the equivalent royalty dollars. Mm, So mm -hmm. we pay a royalty fee on every unit that we sell to these partners um, that ranges from 8% up to 18% of every unit and dollar we sell, we'll give that percentage to the, um, to the partner. And so they have determined that their consumer products business can only be so big uh, from an overhead perspective and from a resource perspective on their own side of their business. And so they don't want to just have diminishing returns that they have found that there are a certain number of companies that can drive um, the highest amount of return. And so uh, they don't want to just add partners Mm -hmm. just to add them. Uh, They look at, I mean, one of the requirements for most is that you've been a business for five years and that you've been in licensing for or five years before you can apply to some of the larger media licensing companies. When we applied, we had been a company for, I think, two years. That's right. And so we had... We, we jumped the gun. Not only did we not have five years as a company, we didn't have five or five years as a licensing partner. We didn't have five years as a company. So yeah. a lot of the things that we had to think about were how can we be additive from a sales perspective? How can we be additive from a product perspective? And really our key initially was our Amazon distribution that we were really, um, you know, there's a real art and science to selling things digitally, not only Mm -hmm. from a D2C perspective, but on Amazon. Um, Amazon kind of is the everything store, the 3P world and having sellers kind of opened up a huge market of people selling product. And there's a true art to that. And I I really believe that Simple Modern's uh, first in class in selling uh, products digitally on Amazon. And that was a way for us to get into that kind of medieval castle, so to speak, is that we had a plan to say, hey, we can grow your business if you let us in and let us be a partner with your. Yeah, you got to make property. an argument. Yeah. We're the best in the world at something, right? You know, and if if you don't have us on your team, then you're not maximizing. You're your sales. leaving sales. You want to be able to show yes. someone that you're leaving sales on the table. That if you partner with us, we can add those sales, and that no one else is thinking about this distribution channel the way that we're thinking about it. Sure, you may have people that you have licensed that are selling on that channel and that distribution, um, specifically Amazon for us. Um, but we had structured our business around Amazon. We knew the ins and outs of Amazon, unlike anyone else in my perspective. Yeah. Being uh, digitally native, I think mattered. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, not only do you have to have a business case, but then you have to find someone to talk to, then you have to submit that application. Mm. And then you kind of go through a round of forecasting mm-hmm. and you have to agree on the terms of the contract, where you're going to sell, what territories you're going to sell in. So what countries are you going to sell in? What distribution channels are you going to sell in? Are you going to sell in your own store, online, in mass retail, in specialty, mm-hmm. in, you know, things like... Um, wholesale club. So you have to find what channels you're going to sell and what products you're going to sell. Uh, and then you have to ultimately agree to a royalty rate and what a lot of these companies call a minimum guarantee. So uh, we have to pay a minimum amount of royalties before we ever sell a product. Before we ever create a product, we have to guarantee a number that we will pay our partners. And so those are kind of the key kind of inputs to a contractual um deal with a licensing partner. What was the most challenging license to add? I think, I mean, I think the first professional sports league was the hardest one that we ever had to do. So we first got our licensing kind of portfolio set up. Uh, You got the local license at the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University. In college licensing, you can get a license to sell nationally, Mm -hmm. or you can get a license to sell locally. And I think probably the first one's always the hardest. And I know that you've got some really great stories about getting that local license at OU. Um, But once we got the local license at OU, it was a lot easier to tell the story of why we should get a national license and go get additional college licenses. Um, But at the time we had been selling, this would have been 2017, we had been selling collegiately licensed product for about a year. We had had a Sam's Club program. We were selling product on Amazon and um, on our website. And we really wanted to get into professional sports leagues because we had a goal of being a large licensed uh, player in the consumer space. And that meant getting licensed with the Walt Disney company, licensed with the NFL, licensed with Paramount and many others. But really you have to start somewhere. And one of the ways we wanted to start with, with a local partner or a local team that we were all kind of sports fans of was the Oklahoma city thunder. And so I think getting the NBA was the most challenging initial league to get because we had to prove ourselves kind of in a broader space in the college mark in the college licensing space. You can just go kind of school to school mm-hmm. and make your case, but the sports leagues act kind of as a, a single unit. So you it's can't, all or nothing. it's all or nothing. You can only, you can't just get, um, the Oklahoma city thunder. You have to get all of the NBA teams. And so there is like one difference with the NBA relative to the other sports leagues is that they let their teams buy their own apparel and their own merchandise for the arenas. And we had found a contact at the Oklahoma city thunder uh, to sell our product for the 2018, 2019 season. And this is a super fun like story that we had convinced the Oklahoma city thunder to sell our product we had designed 20 unique designs on like Which is, four different cups. This is so overkill, by the way. If you're we, listening to this, it was... We went so far. It, it was probably not the best financial decision we ever made, but we really wanted this. If you look at it from the lens of like this specific decision from its own like financial Yeah, encapsulated by itself. It's a bad decision. With the view of you want to go get Disney in the NFL, it's a great decision. Yeah. Uh, but we 
we agreed to sell product to the Thunder. And part of the agreement was that we would take our laser engravers that we used to personalize product to the actual arena for opening night. Oklahoma City was playing the Golden State Warriors on opening night. It was the 10th anniversary of Oklahoma City uh, having the Thunder. And we have four laser engravers set up in one of the concourses right next to the uh, team store. And we're selling Simple Modern product. And I'll never forget, we were setting up the product and the team store manager walks out and uh, we were there getting ready. And he pointed to two gentlemen um, down the concourse and he said, uh, Mike and Corbin, these two are executives at the NBA, NBA yeah. and they've never been to Oklahoma City to see a game. They are executive in, in the consumer product space and they're the people that approve you for a league license. And so I'll never forget getting to meet... Um, those two gentlemen that first night in 2018, because it went from, it's going to be really hard to get this license to Mm -hmm. a lot easier to get this license. Yeah. It went pretty quick once we met the right person, Mm -hmm. which like you said, is not easy to do, but it's also a good example. I think Corbin of, you know, in the early days of a company, you have to do things that don't scale and Mm -hmm. you have to have long-term vision. Like you said, all the things we did for the thunder. uh, Listen, I, I can't, probably properly convey what an enormous pain in the butt it is to drag multiple laser engravers and to in real time laser engrave cups for people at a game. But if that was a thing that helped us grow our partnership with the thunder and ultimately get connected to the NBA, it made a ton of sense. And, you know, we invested, we had some of that inventory for years, for years, you know, stuff that we would be like, what is that skew? Oh yeah. That's the thing we bought. Yeah, several years ago mm-hmm. for the Thunder. So it, it was it was definitely a long-term decision, longer term yeah. than we even thought when it came to the inventory. But it's a good example of how we really wanted to show people we're in this right. and we're going to be thinking long-term. And as a result, we, we got the NBA. And then that, as you said, opened up the doors for some of these other opportunities. And all of these groups, it's they're very small communities in licensing. The sports licensing community is its own community. And then the media licensed community is its own community. And all these people work at the same leagues. They mm-hmm. rotate jobs, they rotate teams, they rotate media companies. And so once you meet one person and can show them the value of your brand or your product. And develop trust. And develop trust and have a long-term vision and plan mm-hmm. to be a partner for years and not just make a quick buck because we didn't make a quick buck on that first NBA season or that very first like thunder sale. You have to have a vision and a long-term mindset to make it work. But it's not like the rest of them just like happened overnight. It took a lot of time, a lot of planning and just a lot of good fortune um, and people willing to make introductions for us at these other leagues and teams and media companies. But they were only willing to make those introductions because of the trust we had built and the performance we were able to show. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluebird Group. Years ago, we wanted to break into mass retail and we thought Target would be the ideal place for our products. Our problem? We knew nothing about selling into mass retail. We emailed the buyer with no response. We could not find a way in. That was when we were introduced to experts at the Bluebird Group. The Bluebird Group is an organization of professionals who've spent their career working inside of and selling into the biggest retailers in the world. They help clients successfully sell into Target, Best Buy, Walmart, Amazon, and Costco. 
Through our relationship with the Bluebird Group, we were able to get in front of decision makers and deliver a compelling vision about how we could partner together with Target. Over the last six years, Bluebird has helped us to grow our business every step of the way. They've helped us with everything from administrative details to developing new partnerships to fine-tuning our omni-channel strategy. We've been able to grow the business to tens of millions in annual sales as a result of their coaching and their partnership. It's easy for me to advocate for Bluebird and everything they've done for us at SimpleBond. When we were considering approaching Disney, even though we were way ahead of schedule, mm -hmm. I had a contact at another company who now ironically works here, mm -hmm. Garrett Mueller, and he had been in charge of the licensing initiative for another company based in Oklahoma, and they had recently become licensed with Star Wars. And he and I had developed a friendship, and he he had mentioned the success they'd had with Star Wars. And I asked him, hey, would you be willing to just kind of connect us with the right person at Disney because we, we can't find the right person mm -hmm. to talk to and get them to pick up the phone. So he said, sure, I'll do that. And he reached out to the person who at that point was in charge of licensing for Disney and said, hey, there's this local company, Simple Modern, they're doing really great. They're interested in a license. And she responded, we're full, uh, you know, don't, don't have any openings, don't foresee any openings. Mm -hmm. So he forwarded that email message to me and I was like, well, that's gonna be tough. That looks pretty definitive. But about two months later, Garrett had been working directly with Lucasfilm. So Disney, the way they're structured, there's different properties and different people run those properties. Garrett had been working with Lucasfilm and the person who was over Lucasfilm who'd worked with him got promoted into the role of main Disney. This mm -hmm. is Mickey, Minnie, princesses, all of that stuff. And this new person... Lori, who stepped into the role, had worked directly with Garrett and had a, had a lot of success. And so based on his recommendation, she was willing to take a look at right. us. And we went from a hard no to a warm introduction and then ultimately a yes, I think within a matter of like four months. It yeah, was it went very really fast. shocking. But you know what made it possible? It was a developed relationship right. and actually from somebody outside of the company even that was willing to make the introduction. But it just speaks to your point that yeah. this is still a relational industry mm -hmm. and people do move around. And it's one of the reasons why uh, building trust and building your track record and your reputation, even within the industry, will impact other opportunities that you get. For sure. We had a, a different situation that happened recently where we're working uh, with uh, an influencer group did perfect, uh, who, you know, we're a big fan of what they do, but they were looking to partner with somebody in the drinkware space and we're working with their agency to try and figure out who would be the ideal partner. So somebody at the agency went out and started asking everyone he knew uh, associated with the drinkware space, who would be the best partner for them. And it turned out that his sister worked for a competitor of right. ours, uh, or had worked for, for a period of time. And he asked her, you know, from your perspective, you were in the drinkware industry, who should we be talking to? And she said, hands down, you should talk to Simple Modern. Yeah. And that partnership, the at least the genesis of it, goes all the way back to the fact that, you know, a, somebody who worked at a competitor had a positive enough impression of us from afar that we got introed and recommended for that opportunity. Yep. It's always about relationships. So you did such a good job with licensing that, uh, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago, two and a half mm -hmm. years ago, I approached you uh, about a different role 
which I was creating called Chief Growth Officer, my perspective had been that during the pandemic, we went through a period of fully remote work. Uh, just working with China in general became more difficult, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, because of lockdowns, because of the logistical mess and all of the other you know barriers that exist already with culture. And I felt like our new product launching and our new product development had really stagnated some. And I wanted to breathe life into it and make sure that we were really focusing on growth regularly. Mm -hmm. And so I approached you with the opportunity for this role of chief growth officer, and you've served in that role now for um, quite a bit of time, over two years. What have you learned during the time being the chief growth officer for Simple Modern? That growth can come from a lot of places, and it comes from a lot of different people's ideas. That like mm -hmm. you don't have to be the one single person that comes with up with all the growth ideas. That you just have to be a person that's willing to facilitate a lot of different conversations and a lot of different um, ideas that could potentially drive growth. Because when we think about driving growth through increasing the number of customers we have, increasing the conversions that we have for the customers we already have like in our ecosystem, and making sure that we have new products that are relevant to our customers within our own kind of product lines, but then also potentially adding new product lines to um, our product roadmap and our product portfolio. So what I've learned the most mm -hmm. is that growth can come from anywhere. It can come from any idea of from anyone inside the company. And so it's not about just being the person that comes up with ideas themselves, but really facilitates conversation. Um, because we've got a really talented product development team. We've got a really talented sales team in physical retail and in digital commerce. Uh, we just have a lot of really thoughtful people that understand drinkware and understand consumer products. And so one of the things that we try to do is just facilitate opportunities for people to um, think creatively and collaborate in a way that could potentially lead to a new product coming into our portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, collaboration is a core value mm -hmm. of our company. We have five and collaboration is one of them. We try to do things uh, where we leverage the strength of the entire team. And one of the things you said that I think is just worth highlighting it's easy when you're in a leadership role, especially new to a leadership role mm -hmm. as you were, and all of the you know insecurities and different things that we bring to new opportunities that we get, it's easy to think, I've got to have all the answers, yeah. I've got to have all the right ideas, and it really is a level up when you start to realize, actually, I don't have to have all the ideas. Mm -hmm. I just have to figure out who does have the right ideas and elevate those ideas that that's really the role. That's what leadership looks like here, especially in an organization where collaboration is so much of mm -hmm. our DNA. So how do you do that? How do you elevate the good ideas and make sure that those things turn into reality? I think a lot of it is finding who in the organization on any given product or any given initiative that we have that has the most insights. And we should go talk to that person and we should have either research done. We should do, you know, we do a lot of research digitally. We have lots of conversations with buyers. We have lots of conversations with customers and we try to find the person that has the most insight into a product or into a distribution channel. And we go talk to them and try to get as much information as possible and let them kind of lead that conversation. So if you have someone that really understands what a trend is going to be, mm -hmm. we have a lot of young employees here at the company. Uh, our core demographic of people that we primarily sell products to works at the company. Uh, there are our friends and our teammates. When they start to see certain trends, we should listen to them. And so that's what we try to do is anytime that uh, 
team members have an idea or have an insight to market changes, not only from a data perspective, but from just a anecdotal trend perspective, we try to dig deeper. And so sometimes we get leads from um, review of data, sales data, internal data, or broader macroeconomic data that we have access to. And that can lead us down a path. Towards and we're not an- afraid to get data from competitors that discover something about changing preference trends. No, I mean, I think one of the things that we've really learned and kind of tapped into over the last couple of years Mm -hmm. is that drinkware specifically is very trend focused. It's like, we're going to sell a lot of like neutral colored water bottles and tumblers, black, white, and gray. We are just going to sell a lot of those. But to really take our brand to the next level is we're going to have to be focused on trend, seasonal ornamentation, seasonal designs, and having products that people really want Mm -hmm. in a very like kind of focused time period. And we have to be willing to be um, really fast developers of really high quality product. And so we'll see a trend in the market that is, you know, maybe you only see one product in the market, but it's of someone carrying the product that we think should be our customer or historically has been our customer, we start looking into what is that product? Why are they carrying it? Is it a function piece? Is it an aesthetic piece? Uh, Is it just they like the way it feels in their hands? And we try to do as much research as possible. So sometimes we get to a new product uh, by anecdotal information that we just see in the world that a team member sees. Sometimes it's from data that we gather uh, internally from competitors, from the open market. Um, There's a lot of information just kind of sitting out there in the world. And we try to take um, advantage of having access to it. So uh, you said you've been in the role for two, two and a half years. And obviously we try to focus on process Mm -hmm. and not just results, but at some point the scoreboard does matter and helps you understand how the process is growing. The company has more than doubled since you stepped into the role. So it seems to be going pretty well. As we've grown, one of the dynamics that you and I have talked a lot about is how much are we trying to put up a lot of shots on goal because we don't know which ones are going to go in and how much are we trying to understand what our best shots on goal are and really putting a lot of the organizational resources, whether that's time or money behind the best shots. How do you think about balancing those two things? It's kind of like a pendulum it's never really in balance. It starts on one side and kind yeah. of swings to the other. You're in balance for like, let's call it 48 hours. Only and, then you, and then you just swing to the, to the other, other side yeah. and then it, it kind of comes back. I think from like a design perspective, we try to put a lot of shots on goal. Like I would try to equate us to like a high, a high paced, fast paced offense in the NBA on ornamentation. We would love to be the Golden State Warriors. We're going to put up a lot of shots yeah. and we want to, I think we hit at a pretty high rate from an ornamentation perspective, but we want to bring literally hundreds of designs to market to understand what our customers want. Um, But from a product perspective, we want to have a high volume, but we have to make sure that the products hit our quality standards. So we're not going to bring something to market that isn't going to get a 4.7, a 4.8 star rating on Amazon. And our product development team does a great job of making sure the products that we do uh, design and create hit that quality standard. And, you know, we're not going to purchase that product uh, to sell until that product hits the standard. So to that point, and I think this is this is a good delineation that you're making, we're willing to accept variance in terms of how successful different launches are. In terms right. of the demand, we're not really willing to accept variance when it comes to quality in different launches. Right. So we'll take a bunch of shots on goal and understand, hey, some of these 
maybe don't go in or we just miss, the demand isn't really there, but we're not going to take any shots on goal where we think this isn't up to our quality standard. Right. Quality has to meet, like our excellence kind of standard is really high and the products that we bring to market have to hit that before we ever like kind of present it to a customer. Mm -hmm. From an ornamentation design perspective, we're willing to test in the market a little bit more than others may be willing to do. And I think that that gives us an advantage, not only digitally, but in physical retail. The other thing that we're we're really trying to think about is, are we kind of stacking on top of ourselves? Or are we being cannibalistic of ourselves? And so we aren't just going to put a lot of new products that just sit on top of one another, but we're going to try to create a portfolio that hits different segments. So do you need a product for water? Do you need a product for like a hot beverage, like tea or coffee? Do you need something that's going to be that you can like take to a sporting game or take mm-hmm. something to like your kid's soccer practice? Um, we try to understand that we have all the products that a customer may customer may need in food storage or drinkware or any of the kind of the the areas that we play in. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned ornamentation, wanting to be a little bit more like the Warriors. We're willing to take a lot of shots on goal. One example uh, that comes to mind for me is that we've released our Trek Tumblr, which has Mm -hmm. had uh, amazing traction this year. How many different ornamentations will we release in one year on that vessel? We will sell over 150 unique ornamentations without any licensing on it. So you add licensing to it, we'll go well over 200 designs. Which is really, I mean, it's it's remarkable that mm-hmm. one of the things you've built internally is you've built this machine where almost every single day we can bring a new look on that item. Mm-hmm. And so as the industry is becoming more fashion-driven, we're able to keep up with that and we're able to catch those waves because we've built the internal machine to be able to constantly bring new stuff to market day after day. Our number one ornamentation and design that we're selling right now, we sold 250 of those of that same design in 2021. We sold them in three days and we sold out. It's now our number one design. We had three days of data and it's turned into our number one design. Mm. And we made some pretty big decisions on taking Almond Birch from Summits and Classics to our entire portfolio on yeah. three days of data. Yeah. I'm reminded of one of my all-time favorite analogies, uh, which is it's an old naval thing that when ships would get into a, a, a war with each other, you know, like they had the big cannons and they're firing at each other. I think Pirates of the Caribbean and how uh, it turns out cannonballs are really expensive and they're really heavy. So you wouldn't keep a ton of them on your ship. And these cannons are not, you know, precision instruments. So you, if you weren't careful, you could waste a ton of your cannonballs shooting and missing the other, shooting at and missing the other ship. So what they quickly learned to do is you don't shoot your cannonballs at first. You take a gun, you lay it on the cannon, you shoot a bullet. If that bullet hits the other ship, Then you take a cannonball and you shoot it at the other Mm -hmm. ship. And we do a lot of that. As you mentioned, like our number one selling ornamentation, we started by buying 250 of it and trying it. Right. And then that did well enough that we said, okay, this is somewhere good. We're going to lean in. And generally that's the case. We very rarely lean all the way into something until we've seen some customer feedback or customer demand that says, hey, we're on the right trail. Even though we survey a lot of designs and survey a lot of products, like people vote with their wallets. And so we're willing to take survey data 
data and apply it to products and designs that we're going to bring to market. But we're really going to trust this, the customer data of the actual transaction that we get. And we want to make sure that what we're bringing to market is incremental. And so we're not going to try to create a lot of water bottle products that like serve the same need for our customers. And so this last summer, we came out with a variety of new products. This year, we'll release over 15 products. And a few of them are cannibalistic because we just needed to improve and bring new products to market for certain use cases. But most of them are incremental in nature where we're trying to find a new product segment, a new product, a new customer that we can sell to. Yeah. Well, you said it. We want to disrupt ourselves when we can get better and we Mm -hmm. don't want to be afraid of that. We want to constantly be bringing new products to market. And then to some extent, we want to allow the customer to tell us what they want from us instead of us pretending that we know best. You know, we have thoughts and we have opinions, but often the customer's opinions or insights are different Mm -hmm. than ours. And why we succeed as a company is by serving the customer and helping them get what they want. I I love the phrase that you used about people voting with their wallets. I I think that that was a key concept for me when I learned that what people will tell you and what people will actually do when it concerns their money are sometimes different things. So I've done a lot of teaching with entrepreneurship students. And one of the things that they'll ask you to do as you're validating a business plan idea is to go and interview a bunch of people and say, hey, would you pay money for, Mm -hmm. you know, this thing? But it turns out that people have a lot of reasons that they might tell you they would spend money on something um, that don't end up turning into purchases. When you actually show up and say, hey, you said you'd buy this from me, and then you don't want to buy it anymore, they might tell you that they'd buy it because they're your friend and they they you know, want you to feel like they believe in you, or they might say, well, yeah, hypothetically, I would pay $20 for that bottle, but I actually already have a bottle. So like, it was just hypothetical. But when you say, okay, I really want you to put your money behind it now, you really do learn what people Mm -hmm. think. It's, it's truth serum in, in a sense. And so the way that we get to that, the, the, really the point of truth and what people really think is by actually putting the product out, letting them vote, and then leaning into the things that work. Yeah. We've been doing this together for quite a few years, Corbin. We go back quite a way. Uh, What are one or two of your favorite memories from Simple Modern so far? Well, I I don't think I've worked at one Simple Modern. I feel like I've worked at like six Simple Moderns. Like we've had like the small startup. There were like eight or nine, 10 of us. Um, I feel like there have just been stages. I feel like I've been fortunate to be here a long time and some of my fondest memories are from like the earliest days where we'd meet at your house. Uh, we'd work remotely. We would work at night, uh, just fun Slack conversations, fun memories. But I think one of the things that really stood out, um, to me early on was we had a Sam's club program, the very first Sam's club program we had in the summer of 2017. And we moved pallets in a warehouse for days. Mm-hmm. I mean, we received hundreds of, uh, 200,000, 300,000, two packs, and they all had to be unloaded from trucks. Uh, They had to be, you know, palletized and put together in a warehouse and then sent out. And we did a large majority of that work with one of our external partners. But I think getting your hands dirty, um, I mean, some of those earliest memories, I think getting the MBA license and getting the laser engraving event at the arena and then meeting the group that would ultimately approve us for the license. And they had never been uh, to the Oklahoma city thunder. Yeah. That's good. Uh, fortune I mean, that, right there. it's like, that is a super fun memory of just like um, getting to know someone, having an opportunity and then executing um, one of the members of the NBA. I actually saw him earlier this year and we had given him a cup 
uh, in 2019. And when the pandemic happened, he told me this, um, he went back to his office in uh, March of 2020 to get his um, kind of belongings. He said the, the only thing he took besides work um, documents in his computer was our simple modern mug we gave him. He said it, he kept it the entire pandemic and he still uses it. And so it's like finding like kind of moments like that are things that I'll always remember that like the products we make have an impact on people. They really love what we get to make and then finding ways to introduce them to the brand um, is something I'll always remember. But I think that the things that when I think about uh, simple modern and what I remember, it's like they're the challenging times. I mean, mm. we've had a lot of great successes and we've had mm. a lot of fun together. I think a lot of people on the podcast would probably talk about the people and the relationships because that's ultimately going to be what we remember. Um, so, okay, one one last question for you, Corbin. When you think about the future of the company, mm-hmm. you've got a very long-term mindset. You know, like you mentioned at the beginning of this, there was a point where you thought you'd be here for a while and then you'd go and get a graduate degree. Uh, I don't think that's your plan uh, now. You know, you and I are definitely having conversations where we're thinking in terms of decades. Mm -hmm. What gets you excited about the future? I think the things that get me most excited about the future are that we get to talk about this in decades. There are a lot of companies that have to think about monthly reporting and quarters and hitting and by the way, we have plenty of monthly and quarterly metrics we have to hit. But like the things that we think about and the things that we go pursue are things that we can do for a long period of time. And we're only able to do that because the team is so focused on doing this together for a really long period of time. So what excites me about this is that we have a team of people that are really dedicated to the idea that we can impact the lives of others through giving generously. And we're able to do that by taking on really challenging business operations and business opportunities in the consumer space. Will we always be in the consumer space? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe yes, maybe no. We could do lots of different things. But mm-hmm. I think the, the kind of the inputs that are really interesting to me that get me excited every day that I get to do this uh, and be a part of this team is that we're thinking about ways to impacting the lives of other people through giving generously of our talents, our time, our resources. Um, And that's not only for like our external giving partners, but that's for our teammates and colleagues here at Simple Modern. It's for our external partners, our 3PL partner, our, you know, warehousing partners, our manufacturing partners, our licensing partners. And it's like we get to try to hopefully make a really positive impact on the partners lives that we interact with on kind of an everyday level. And so we're able to do that when we make great products that our customers delight in. And in the consumer space, it's really hard to delight your customers every single day for decades. Like one of the things that, you know, we're not selling a service in a B2B sense. Like we are selling directly to a customer. There is a person in every city and every state that we're trying to convert into our kind of like ecosystem, into our brand. And we want to bring them alongside us in terms of like what we're trying to accomplish that we think that we're called to accomplish. And so that's what gets me excited is that we want to impact the lives of others. We're able to do that if we execute our business roles really well. That's really hard to do. Um, being intrinsically motivated towards just accomplishing challenging tasks, like that's a, a pretty fun adventure every day. Yeah, well, you, you said it. I mean, calling, I think was a word you used. And everybody wants that. They want that sense of calling of this is something meaningful that I feel like is for me. Mm-hmm. And there's a trade-off that comes with that. It's 
saying yes to something and saying yes to something for a long period of time means saying no to a lot of other things. I mean, you're a really talented person. We're surrounded by really talented people that could do a bunch of different things. And I think what has made it special is that we've got a group of people that are willing to say yes to this and say no to all the other things they could do. And when you get a group of people that are all willing to do that together, something special can happen. Right. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for your work. I think we're the company that we are today because of, of you and your unique fingerprint is all over our products and our growth and our ethos. So Corbin, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Mike. And thank you to everybody who listened. This has been another episode of Scaling for Good. Scaling for Good.